stand firm in the Lord. When the enemy attacks, stand firm. When the culture shifts beneath your feet, stand firm. When your world is turned upside down and inside out, stand firm. The command to stand firm in the Lord is given in our passage this morning. Today we continue our study of the powerful New Testament letter of Philippians. I invite you to draw your sword, turn to Philippians chapter 3. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. This morning I want to read to you Philippians chapter 3 beginning at verse 12 and conclude in chapter 4 verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward, in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many people live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame, their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. The command, stand firm, occurs at the end of our passage. It is a military term. It means to stay at your post. Don't get knocked off point. Be immovable. The command is second person plural, present imperative. To say that it's second person plural is to say that this is a command given to all of us, not just a few selected soldiers. To say that it's a present tense is to say that it implies a continuous action. You stand firm and you continue to stand firm. It's an imperative, which means it's a command. This is not a suggestion for your debate. This is a command that we subject ourselves to, for we are to stand firm in the Lord. But even so, we ask the question, how do we stand firm? 
I mean, Paul gives this command and he, he couches it in numerous uh, pleasant words and languages. He speaks to the congregation as, my dear friends, my brothers, those whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown. And even though he's as sensitive as he can be, he's as straightforward as he possibly can be. He says to his beloved friends and family members there at Philippi, stand firm. How do you do that? When the enemy attacks you, when the culture shifts underneath you when your world is turned upside down. How do you stand firm? Simply stated, what Paul gives us in our passage are three principles. He tells us to lift up, to live up, and to look up. If you and I are going to stand firm, first and foremost, we must lift up our gaze to Christ. We've got to lift up our gaze to Christ. Now, the first couple of verses of our passage are tied tightly to the previous two verses. You may recall Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. We made reference of this last time we spoke, that there Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I want to be like him in his death. I want to share in his sufferings. I want to attain the resurrection of the dead. For Paul, the resurrection was not just an event. It was the culmination of Christian hope. Resurrection is, is not just something that's going to happen in the future. No, it is the apex of our salvation. It is the pinnacle of our faith. For the apostle Paul, he would always describe salvation using past tense, present tense, and future tense. Paul would have said to you, there was a time when I was saved, when the Lord knocked me off that high horse as I was on the Damascus Road. I was saved completely and fully. But then, Paul would also say, I am being saved in the present moment. That right now, even as I'm chained to a Roman soldier under house arrest, I am being saved in my present circumstance. And ultimately, Paul would say, I will be saved. For there's coming a day when Christ will return and my lowly body, body will be transformed into a glorious body. And at that moment of glorious transformation and resurrection power, I will be saved. So for Paul, like you, salvation is past, present, and future. If you're a Christian, there was a time in your past when Christ saved you. And if you're a Christian, in this very moment... You are being saved. And you have the same promise, the same hope, the same culmination of your Christianity. For you know that one day Christ will ultimately and fully and eternally save you. And you will not be bound by this earth any longer. And this lowly body will be transformed to a glorious body. So your salvation is just like the Apostle Paul's. Past, present, and future. So after Paul makes these glorious statements about wanting to know Christ and the power of the resurrection and being like him unto death and, and sharing in his sufferings to attain the resurrection, he says in the opening verses of our passage, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. I have not yet attained all of this. I have not been made perfect. Now those are not brash statements from the apostle. 
He's just saying, I have not fully acquired, I have not fully attained this glorious resurrection power. I haven't fully attained it all yet. I have not been made perfect, which is the word, uh, I have not been made complete. For all of us are under construction. Can I get an amen? We're not all what we ought to be, but praise God, we're not what we used to be, right? And God is still chiseling away some of the sinful habits of your life and mine. So we're always under construction. We're not complete yet. We're not perfect yet. Not this side of heaven. So Paul says, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. I have not attained all of this. I have not been made perfect yet. But one thing I do, I forget what lies behind. I strain toward what lies ahead, the goal, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I do this one thing. I'm consumed by this one thing. You know, for most of us, we can be consumed and concerned by many one things. We can be consumed with the marriage thing, with the money thing, with the job thing, with the children thing, with the school thing, with the relationship thing, with the sports thing, with the political thing. We can be consumed with a lot of one things. Oh, but I love it when the Bible synthesizes the complexity of life into something so simple. Paul says, this one thing I do. Many things I could do, but one thing I actually do. He synthesizes down all the complexity of life into one thing. This reminds me of uh, what Jesus said to the rich young ruler. You lack one thing. Go, sell your possessions, give money to the poor, come, follow me. Jesus said to Martha, you're worried and upset about many things. There is one thing that is needed. And Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. I ultimately love what the blind man said. For once he received his sight, he was being interrogated by the religious leaders. And he just simply said, one thing I know. <laughs> I was blind, but now I see one thing. I love it when the Bible just synthesizes the complexity of life down to one thing. Here, Paul says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining toward what is ahead, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I agree with Warren Wiersbe. I think that the Apostle Paul has in his mind a picture of an Olympic chariot race. That when he's talking about forgetting what lies behind, straining toward what lies ahead to win the goal, the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, he probably is visualizing one of the greatest athletes in his day and time. Those athletes that would be standing on a small wooden two-by-four. And on each side of that two-by-four would be a gigantic wheel. And the wheel and the two-by-four was harnessed to powerful horses. And those horses would go around the track of the Colosseum. And the athlete would have to struggle and strain as to not lose his balance, as to not lose control of the horses. 
as to not lose the race. And in a similar way that as a jockey mounts a horse in our day, so these athletes, they would lean forward, not back. They would not lean backwards. They would lean forward. And with every fiber of muscle in their being, they would do their best to keep control in the midst of all the dirt and dust flying of the hooves of the horses as they were racing around in the chaos of all the other chariots and the horses that were all around them and in the midst of all the jostling up and down of the wheels as they made their way around the track, these athletes, they would press forward. They would lean forward with all their might as to not lose control and lose their balance. And every good athlete would tell you, you never look behind you. You never look behind you. If you look behind you in the middle of the chaos of the race, you will lose your balance. You will uh, veer over to the left or the right, and you will lose control of your horses. So you do not look behind you. You always look ahead of you. Because the race is not behind you. The race is in front of you. So Paul says, it's one thing that I do. I forget what lies behind. I strain, I stretch, I struggle toward what is ahead. The prize, the goal, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I know some of your translations may say the heavenward call of God in Christ Jesus. Literally the text reads that upward call of God. This is why Paul is telling the church, if you are going to stand firm in the chaos of life, when the enemy attacks you, when the culture shifts under your feet, when your world is turned upside down and inside out, if you're going to stand firm, you've got to lift up your gaze to Christ. Paul says, like the imagery of that athlete, that is an analogy of life. In life, in the chaos, in the confusion, in the moment of living life when everything is helter-skelter, in that moment, do not look behind. Paul says, I forget what lies behind in life. I strain toward what is ahead, the goal, the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. For Paul to say, I forget, does not mean that he fails to remember. He is not having holy amnesia. No, when he says the word forget, he means whatever lies behind me, it does not influence me today. That what is behind me is not held over me. That whatever happened in my past, it, it does not determine, it does not dictate, it does not influence the race I'm running now. So what is Paul forgetting? What is he forgetting in the sense that whatever that is, it's not going to have an influence over his present race, over his present life? What is he forgetting? The answer, everything. He's forgetting the success and the setbacks. He's forgetting the rewards and the rags. He is forgetting the accomplishments and the agony. He is forgetting all the good stuff and all the bad stuff. Because when you run the race of life, it is tempting to either rest on the success of your laurels, it's equally tempting to be paralyzed by the sin of your past. 
And Paul says, I forget everything that lies behind. Whatever lies behind, it, it happened in my life. I, I've learned from it. It's a valuable lesson, but it does not influence my today and my tomorrow because I am straining toward what is ahead. The race is not behind me. The race is in front of me. Life is not behind me. Life is in front of me. In, the, in order for me to stand firm, I have got to lift up my gaze under Christ. I realize that Paul would have no idea what a car or a truck would look like. Uh, he would not even be able to fathom a Tesla. I mean, there's no way he would even be able to think about that. But you know what it is to drive a car, to drive a truck. And have you ever noticed the size differential between your rearview mirror and your windshield? You ever noticed that? Your rearview mirror is given so you can give a glance every once in a while. But just as a little tip for all the drivers out there, uh, don't gaze into your rearview mirror. You can't drive down the road gazing into your rearview mirror. You give it a glance every once in a while to see what is behind you, to see what is around you, but you give it a glance, but you gaze through the windshield. You gaze because the windshield is so much bigger, it's so much broader, it's so much clearer, it shows you exactly what is lying in front of you. So you gaze out the windshield. You give a glimpse or a glance under the rearview mirror. The Apostle Paul would amen that, he would echo that, he would say that's exactly what you do. If you're going to stand firm, you've got to lift your gaze up out through the windshield. Do not look behind. But you strain forward to what's ahead. When you come to verses 15 and 16, Paul gives the second principle that if you and I are going to stand firm, not only do we lift up our gaze unto the Lord, but secondly, we've got to live up to the truth that we've attained. We've got to live up to the truth that we've attained. Paul says in verse 15, um, everybody who is mature ought to have the same mindset. If you disagree at any point with me on this, Paul says, then God will make it clear. In other words, if you disagree with what I'm saying, just take it up with the Lord. The Lord will straighten you out. Don't get mad at me. Get mad at him. I'm just the mouthpiece. Now, that may sound arrogant. It may sound just a little bit rude, but Paul is not being rude, and he's not being arrogant. The word that he says is that, all of us who are mature ought to have the same mindset. For Paul in the Philippian letter, mindset is paramount. It is huge because he said in chapter 2 that we ought to have the mind of Christ. And if we have the mind of Christ and we share that same mind with him, then we ought to agree with each other because we've been in tune with the mind of Christ. So Paul says that all of us who are spiritually mature, all of us who are in tune with the Lord, we ought to have the same mindset. We ought to think the same way. I'll give you a little analogy. If we had a hundred pianos and they're all tuned perfectly with the same tuning fork, doesn't it stand to reason those pianos would be in tune with each other? Not only are they in tune with the tuning fork, but if the same tuning fork 
is used to adjust all of those pianos, all those pianos ought to be in tune with each other. This is precisely what Paul is saying. That if if you are spiritually mature, if your mind has been tuned to the mindset of Christ, and my mind has been tuned to the mindset of Christ, then the reality, the result ought to be that you and I agree on a lot of significant things. You and I agree. We, we have the same mindset. We have the same worldview. We have the same outlook. We have the same values. We have the same perspective. We have the same bent. Why? Because our minds have been shaped around the tuning fork of the Lord Jesus Christ. So his mind is my mind. His mind is your mind. Therefore, our minds think alike. We actually, as Christians, we, we ought to think very similar about a host of issues. That doesn't mean that we just check our minds at the door and don't think about anything. No. No. But because we do think about things, and we think about it through the prism of Christ and Him crucified, as we think about things through the mind of Christ, your conclusion ought to be pretty similar to my conclusion. And my conclusion ought to be pretty similar to your conclusion when it comes to the significant matters of faith and salvation. So Paul says, if you disagree with me, the Lord will make it clear. God will straighten it out. Just take it up with him. Then he says, our little principle, he says, um, we have to live up to what we have attained. So the truth that has laid hold of your life, that you hold on to it, that you've got to live up to that truth that God has given to you. In his commentary on Philippians, Moses Silva says that spiritual growth comes through obedience. The more you obey God's truth, the more you grow spiritually. The more you grow spiritually, the more you long to obey the truth that God gives you. It is a wonderful, beautiful cycle. That the more truth God gives you, the more obedience you demonstrate. The more obedience you demonstrate, the more truth God gives to you. What Paul is saying as we come to the middle of our passage, he simply says, if you're going to stand firm, then you've got to live up to the truth that God has given you. You've got to live up to the truth that you have attained. When the children were infants, Jane Ellen taught me a valuable lesson. Here comes the lesson. You never buy infant clothing that will fit the infant today. Because if you buy infant clothing that will fit the infant today, those critters grow so fast that they'll be out of those clothes before you even know it. Before you get your money's worth, they'll be beyond those clothes. So what you do is you go out and when you buy clothing for infants, you always buy up. A size or two. Now I know it looks kooky, doesn't it? I mean, you've got your babies and 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 the clothing is too big, so you gotta roll up the sleeves and you gotta cuff up the pants. But just give it some time. Because babies were created to grow rapidly. And a baby will grow rapidly. And before long, they'll grow into those clothes. And before long, they'll even grow out of those clothes. And they'll need some new clothes to wear. In a very similar way, God never wastes his truth. He gives you truth today 
that will fit you tomorrow. He gives you his truth today so that you can live up to that truth, so you can live out that truth. And as you grow, because you were created to grow spiritually, you were created to grow rapidly as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So as you grow, he gives you more truth. I know sometimes the truth God gives you, it looks like it doesn't fit. You're walking around and the truth of God's garments have to be cuffed up your pants, have to be rolled up in your sleeves. And sometimes you look a little funny as you're trying to live out that truth that he's given to you but just give you some time give you some experience give you some life and guess what what God gave you today is going to help you tomorrow and what he gives you tomorrow is going to help you on tomorrow's tomorrow so you just know that God never wastes his truth he gives it to you to help you today and to help you tomorrow God knows that the truth he gives you he gives you upsized he gives it to you up a couple of sizes because he knows that he's crafted you he's made you to grow so you'll live up to the truth that you've attained the way you stand firm when the enemy attacks you the way you stand firm when the culture shifts underneath your feet the way you stand firm when your world turns upside down and inside out you've got to live up to the truth that you've attained now, if it's true that spiritual growth is a result of obedience, then this next statement also must be true. That some of us have spiritual growth that's been stunted because of disobedience. If it's true that spiritual growth is a result of obedience, and some of you, as you're Let's just be honest today. Let's be self-aware. Let's put ourselves to the test. You think to yourself, you know, spiritually speaking, I'm the same size. I'm the same development that I've been this time last year, this time five years ago, this time a decade or two ago. I really haven't changed all that much. I, I'm still pretty much the same person doing the same thing, believing the same thing. And I really haven't gone deeper or broader in my faith. Friend, if you're in a dry season, and all of us have them, all right, let's just take off the mask this morning. Let's just be honest. Let's just be real. All of us have dry seasons. All of us have seasons and pockets and periods of life when we're not growing as much as other moments of life. But let's be honest and let's be self-aware that could it be that the reason you are stunted right now in your spiritual growth is because of disobedience. There may be some area of your life well, you are blatantly disobedient to the Lord. And chances are you know it. I don't have to point it out. You know it. Because you give a lot of effort covering it up. You know what the disobedience is. And you do your best to just try to bury it. You do your best to try to ignore it. You do your best trying to cover it up. But you know that disobedience is stunting your spiritual growth. Paul says to the church, you've got to live up to what you have attained. Not only are you lifting up your gaze to Christ, you are living up to the truth that you have attained. Because spiritual growth comes from obedience. Listen, I know the song is old, but it's still in tune. Trust and obey, for there's no other way. To be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. 
Paul tells the church, if you're going to stand firm, you first and foremost, you've got to lift up your gaze to Christ. Secondly, you've got to live up to the truth that God has given to you. But third and finally, if you're going to stand firm, third and finally, you have to look up to the Savior from heaven. You've got to look up to the Savior from heaven. Beginning in verse 17, Paul writes on tear-stained parchment. He says, tragically, there are many people who do not follow the example I've set. There are many people who do not follow the pattern that I have established. What is the pattern? Well, just think back in Philippians. Earlier in the letter, he gave us the pattern of life of both Timothy and Epaphroditus. He said, you need to honor people like these guys. So Paul comes in our passage and he says, tragically, there are people who, they, they don't live up to the example that I've set. They don't pattern their life after the examples that I've referenced already. He simply calls them enemies of the cross of Christ. There are many theologians who say that's another reference to Judaizers. It's not the first time we heard the word Judaizer. A Judaizer was a self-professing Jewish Christian, but Paul says they're not Christians at all. These Judaizers claim that in order for you to become a Christian, you must first become a Jew. And because of that, circumcision was required. Dietary laws were mandatory. And observance of certain holidays was implied. You had to do those things. If you were going to be a Christian, you had to first be a Jew. And earlier, Paul spoke of them as dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. Here in our passage, he simply labels them as enemies of the cross of Christ. So what does an enemy of the cross of Christ look like? Well, he gives about three or four characteristics. He says their destiny is destruction. Their God is their belly or their stomach. They glory in their shame and their mind is on earthly things. Paul could be referencing Judaizers. He could just be referencing anybody who is outside of Christ. For you know that all of humanity can be categorized in one of two groups. Either people are in Christ or they're outside of Christ. Once again, I love it when the Bible synthesizes the complexity of life. All of people, all people, all humanity can be categorized in one of two areas, one of two categories, either in Christ or outside of Christ. Everybody outside of Christ, their destiny is destruction and they have no one to blame but themselves. Paul says that these enemies of the cross Their God is their belly. Now, this could be a reference to Judaizers because of the dietary restrictions that they imposed on people. It also could be just a general statement of how some people outside of Christ, many people outside of Christ, um, they live loosely as they are are striving to, uh, to appease the appetites of life. That whatever pleasures them, whatever pleases them, that's what they devour. So their God is their stomach. Their God is their own pleasure. Paul says uh, they glory in their shame. This could be a, a veiled reference to circumcision. Because the Judaizers, they really gloried in that shame. It's not that circumcision was a shameful act, but how they elevated 
circumcision was shameful. They said the basis of our salvation is dependent upon what a man does to an organ of his anatomy. That's the basis of our salvation. And Paul says that is shameful. The base of your salvation is not circumcision. The base of your salvation is Christ and him crucified. That's the gospel that Paul preached continuously. This could be a reference to circumcision. It also could just be a reference to, once again, immoral sexual living. Because there are a lot of people that they do whatever pleases their sexual appetites. And they glory in that. They brag about that. It's the locker room conversation that takes place not only in a locker room, but outside a locker room. It's all the bragging. It's all the the glory that people place in their shameful deeds. Deeds that should embarrass them. Actions that should cause their face to blush. But instead, they glory in their shame. And Paul says that their, their mind is on earthly things. Well, that's obvious, right? Because if you're outside of Christ, you don't have the mind of Christ. And if you don't have the mind of Christ, the only other option is you have an earthly mind. And if you have an earthly mind, you think about earthly things. But if you have a spiritual mind, you think about spiritual things. This does cause us to stop right now and ask the question, what do we think about? Because what we think about and how we think reveals who we are, whether we're inside of Christ or outside of Christ. Paul will speak much more about this in the next passage, but let me just go ahead and tease it out just a little bit and tell you this. I think that your mind is so great, so awesome, so powerful, you can train your mind to have godly thoughts. If you are a spirit-filled person, if you have the mind of Christ, you can train that mind to think on God first thing in the morning. You can train your mind to think on Christ, not the culture, throughout the day. You can train your mind to have your last thought be that of Christ and not something in this earth bound by this world. You can train your mind. Paul's going to show us how to do that in the very next passage. But he says in our passage that if you have an earthly mind, all you think about are earthly things. So then he comes to verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. The word for citizenship is a Greek word from which we get the English word politics. Friends, this cannot be more timely for you and for me living in America today. Because listen, if you are in Christ, if you are standing firm, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know your allegiance is not to a donkey or an elephant. Your allegiance is to King Jesus You are in this world, but you're not of this world. You are part of another kingdom. You've been sent here to demonstrate the values of that kingdom and let that kingdom influence this kingdom, but this kingdom is not your home. This nation is not your home. You're proud to be an American, and I I hope you are, but this nation is not your home. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, this is so important to the Philippians. Because the Philippians, they prided themselves on their citizenship. The city of Philippi was a Roman colony located 800 miles from the capital city of Rome. Philippi was surrounded by Greek territories. Philippi should have been a Greek colony. 
but Philippi was not. Philippi was a Roman colony. To be a Roman colony meant that the government of Rome ruled the area of Philippi. So the Philippians prided themselves, our citizenship is in the Roman Empire. We are citizens of the greatest empire on the nation. And in the first century, they can honestly say, this is the greatest empire that's ever lived. We are citizens of the greatest empire, the Roman Empire. And Paul comes along and says, listen, praise the Lord that you're part of the Roman Empire. I too am a Roman citizen. Paul will write elsewhere. But here in our passage, he said, ultimately, our citizenship is in heaven. It was Tony Evans who reminds us that the church is an embassy. And as Christians, we are ambassadors. You know what an embassy is, don't you? An embassy is a sovereign territory located in a foreign land. The rules of the foreign land do not rule over the embassy. The rules of the embassy are derived from the homeland. So that an embassy is a little bit of home far from home. That's an embassy. So if you're ever in a foreign country and you get in trouble, and I know you're a Christian, and why would you as a Christian get in trouble in a foreign land? But what's done in a foreign land can stay in a foreign land. Uh, amen. All right, I understand. So if you're in a foreign land and if you get in trouble, where are you going to turn? You better try to go to the embassy. The U.S. embassy, wherever you're located in whatever foreign land, you want to get to the embassy because once you pass through the gate of the U.S. embassy, you are now on U.S. soil. Even if you're in a foreign country, that territory is sovereign. It belongs to the homeland. Tony Evans says the church, the church is an embassy from heaven sent by God. That the church is a little bit of, of, of heaven on earth. It is a replica heaven. That uh, uh, the, the church is, is located a long way from home, but it represents the values of home. Our home is in heaven. So as a church, we are an embassy. We, we are ruled, we are governed, not by the rules and the jurisdictions of various nations and countries. We are governed by King Jesus. And whenever anybody gets in trouble in our kingdom, whenever anybody gets in trouble in any nation, where should they turn? They should be able to turn to the church, right? Because the church is an embassy of the Lord. The church is a little bit of heaven on earth. And we should treat people in the church the way God treats people in heaven. So that we have a different set of values. We have a different worldview. We have a different allegiance. So as Christians, we're ambassadors. You know what an ambassador is, don't you? An ambassador is one who is sent by one kingdom to reside in another kingdom and to live out the values of the kingdom from which the ambassador came. Paul is saying, we're ambassadors. We've been sent here by God. We have God's values and God's priorities and God's love and God's agenda. Our kingdom is his kingdom. And we've been sent here to do our best to, to, to be salt and light, to infiltrate this kingdom with the values of the King of kings and the Lord of lords because we don't belong to this world. We belong to heaven. 
So we are part of an embassy. We are ambassadors for Christ. And we communicate the values and the priorities and the agenda of King Jesus. Paul says that if you're going to navigate, if you're going to stand firm in this chaotic world, when the enemy attacks you, when the culture shifts under your feet, when your world turns upside down, you had better lift your gaze. You had better look up to the Savior from heaven. Paul says in our passage that we eagerly await a Savior from there. That word eagerly await is the same word that Paul uses in Romans chapter 8, and we oftentimes translate that as moans and groans. We groan for the coming of Christ. Can I get an amen? I mean, if you're a Christian, you long for Jesus to return. And when Jesus comes, what's he going to do? Paul says he's going to arrange everything under his control. Does it feel like life is out of control? Does it feel like things are topsy-turvy? Does it feel like things are falling apart? Does it look like things are out of line? When Jesus comes back, he will line up everything under his control. And he will transform our lowly bodies. And give us glorious bodies. I don't know about you, but that sounds like resurrection to me. So now Paul, at the end of the passage, is still talking about what he referenced at the beginning of the passage. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I want to attain that resurrection. And Paul says, I will attain it and you will attain it. And all God's children will attain it. Because there's coming a day when Jesus will come back. Jesus will step out of heaven and step into earth. He will return. And when he comes, he'll line up everything that's out of line. And he will glorify our bodies out of these lowly bodies of earth. So Paul just simply says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. Friends, right now, King Jesus is seated. King Jesus the one who went to the cross for your sins and mine. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. The tomb could not hold him. He conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave. And then he ascended to the heavens. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Right now, Jesus is seated. But I came this morning to tell you that Jesus will not be seated forever. There's coming a day when Jesus will stand up. Jesus will stand up for a reason. Jesus will stand up for a season. Jesus will stand up on purpose. Jesus will stand up to keep a promise. Jesus will stand up when the father looks over to his son, gives him the wink and the nod, and says, son, go get your church. And Jesus will stand up. When Jesus stands up, that he will split the eastern sky. When Jesus stands up, he'll be accompanied by the angels and by the saints. When Jesus stands up, he will descend. When Jesus stands up, there'll be a loud command, a voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God. When Jesus stands up and when he descends, the dead in Christ, those in the tomb, they'll jump out of the grave. They'll jump out of the grave and they'll meet God in the air. Their lowly bodies will be transformed into glorious bodies. When Jesus stands up, we 
who are left, we who are still here, we will be snatched up to meet him in the air. When Jesus stands up, everybody will take notice. When Jesus stands up, heaven will peak and peer. When Jesus stands up, all the world will acknowledge that he really is King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus will stand up. He's seated right now, but he won't be seated forever because there's coming a day when Jesus will stand up. What I'm trying to tell you is that you need to stand firm till Jesus stands up. You need to stand firm until Jesus stands up. You need to stand firm until Jesus stands up. You stand firm when the devil comes against you. You stand firm when the uh, culture shifts underneath you. You stand firm when the world spins out of control. You stand firm until Jesus stands up. Because when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Paul gives the church one command in our passage. Stand firm. When the enemy attacks, stand firm. When the culture shifts under your feet, stand firm. When your world is turned upside down, stand firm. But you ask the text, you ask the apostle Paul, how long must I stand firm? And he just simply says, you stand firm until Jesus stands up. Because when Jesus stands up, he'll right all the wrongs. He'll align everything that's out of whack. And he will fit you for eternity. And you will then know the power of his resurrection. Friends, stand firm until Jesus stands up. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Lord, we give you this invitation. There may be somebody here who is outside of Christ. And today they need to be in Christ. Lord, as we sing this song, let that person come down the aisle, take a minister by the hand and say, I need to know how to be in Christ Maybe there are some Christians here and, and we're not standing firm. We, we're stunted because of disobedience. Uh, we're, we're shifting just like the culture. Lord, we need your help. Lord, maybe today there are some Christians who need to rededicate themselves, come and pray. Maybe there are some families that need to come and pray. Some husbands, some wives need to come and pray. And Lord, maybe you're calling some people to full-time Christian service. Whatever you're doing here in this place, as you're drawing people to faith in Christ, as you're drawing people to this embassy called First Baptist Church Pelham, Lord, help us to respond in obedience. We ask this in Jesus' name.